This is Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. Fall weather has arrived in Wisconsin, which means it's a great time to break out the heavy-duty pots and make some chili. Chili is a staple of Midwest cooking in the fall, whether it's white chicken chili, a hearty vegetarian version, or an old-fashioned tomato-based chili con carne, with or without beans. It's Food Friday, and our guest has traveled the world to study the history of chili, its ancestors and cousins, and the regional varieties around the United States. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. What's your favorite way to eat chili? In a bowl with cornbread? On a hot dog? Plate of nachos? Do you have a tried-and-true recipe you make every year? And I don't think there's a Wisconsin-style chili, but maybe you disagree. What is Wisconsin-style chili? If so, call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Rob Walsh is an award-winning food writer and the author of a dozen books about food, including The Chili Cookbook. Rob, thanks a lot for joining us today. Great to be here, Rob. Your book is packed with a lot of great recipes, Rob. I love the history, too. Can you talk about the first thing we know about that we would, you know, look at in the modern age and say, yeah, I think that meets the the category of chili? Well, you know, it goes way back before the modern age because uh, we we know that Native Americans were uh, stewing venison with uh, with chilies, you know, back before in prehistory, before Columbus. So, uh, so chili's been around forever. Now, can you talk about how it became so big? The what we think of as modern chili in the United States. I know there are arguments about who gets credit for the first modern chili, but what were some of the first big hits? Well, it's sort of the big game changer uh, in the Midwest was the uh, the World's Fair, the Columbia Exposition. Uh, 1893, is that? I'm pretty sure. I think so. Uh, in Chicago. And uh, what had happened was uh, people from all over the country began traveling around on the trains and tourism. My, tourism really sort of started in the in the latter part of the 1800s. People went to San Antonio and they, they discovered the Chili Queens, these colorful women with stalls in the public markets who were selling... Um, what we call Tex-Mex now, what they called Mexican food back then, but chili con carne was really at the heart of it. Um, Enchiladas with chili, tortillas with chili. And uh, so when they held the Columbia Exposition, they invited uh, a chili queen stall, a chili stand from San Antonio, to set up in the midway of the Columbia Exposition. It was the first time Midwesterners uh, got to see chili outside of Texas, and it just caught fire. There was there was chili being made in in St. Louis, and uh, all across the Midwest shortly after that. And in fact, the Mexican uh, pavilion at the I think it was the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair spawned more uh, chili con carne interest. Uh, a guy named Gebhardt, William Gebhardt, a German immigrant. Uh, in San Antonio, came up with a chili powder that was uh, it was pulverized anchos with a little uh, oregano and, and cumin in it, and it made it possible for people all over the country to make chili. Um, so there was just an explosion of interest in chili con carne. Um, tamales were were also huge; they were much bigger than hamburgers or hot dogs back at the turn of the century in Chicago, in particular. 
So um, the the Midwest was just a hotbed of chili con carne, you know, right around the turn of the cent- uh, that last century, the, the turn of the 20th century. You, Rob, in the book, give uh, equal time to a lot of different regional variations of chili, but you're coming from a, a Tex-Mex tradition. If somebody said to you, Rob, I want to make, you know, a kind of Tex-Mex chili that those chili queens might have served up at the World's Fair, what are some of the keys uh, that would have to be part of that? Well, there's a there's a recipe in the book for El Real Chili con Carne. That was my Tex-Mex restaurant in Houston, uh, uh, we COVID did us in, but we were around for about 10 years. And uh, that chili starts with bacon. Uh, we cook bacon down, and we use that bacon as the uh, the grease that we cook the, uh, the beef in. And uh, then we make our own chili powder by uh, pulverizing the, the anchos and, uh, and grinding them up with the, the oregano and the cumin. Um, much, much bigger flavor than the stuff that's been in a bottle for a long time. Um, but that's really, that's kind of purest chili, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, quite delicious. But, uh, but really, I mean, chili has become pretty easy to make. There's some wonderful chili powders on the market uh, from, I mean, all different uh, spice companies now. And and basically, you know, uh, if you use if you use stew meat and and you you cut it up fine, that's really spectacular chili con carne. But you know, ground meat ground beef is 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 fine too. Um, and the slow cooker, the crock pot, has revolutionized chili because uh, you want to brown the the meat before you put it in the cooker, as you know, for food safety reasons as well as to develop some of those. Uh, wonderful Maillard reaction, caramelized flavors. But if you brown the meat, put it in a crock pot with the with the chili uh, powder and the and the liquids. Um, let it go for six hours, eight hours. It, you're going to have a, a wonderful dinner when you get home. It's Food Friday. We're talking to Rob Walsh, author of a bunch of books about food, including the Chili Cookbook. We're talking about great chili recipes, advice for making all manner of different kinds of chilies. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Are you thinking about chili this time of year? Do you have a favorite go-to? People have argued about what is and isn't chili over the year. Do you have a strong opinion when it comes to beans, no beans, tomatoes, no tomatoes, you name it? And hey, this is Wisconsin. I know some of you I've made chili with venison. Love to hear your results at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. And Rob, you start off with some uh, older school, you know, recipes that might have been how uh, people made chili with venison in uh, Native American, early Native American times. You've got a venison recipe. Can you talk about venison going into our chili? Um, it's it's a wonderful flavor, but you don't want to cook it quite as long because venison doesn't have a lot of fat in it, and uh, leaner meats don't do well on when they're cooked too long. Um, actually, the other thing that you know the Native Americans were cooking besides venison was turkey. I mean, turkey goes back to uh, to pre-Columbian times as well, and turkey chili is uh, is pretty fabulous. It's also uh, you know people swear by the the healthiness of it, but um, when I put turkey chili out and and beef chili out, a lot of people can't tell the difference, especially if you use the dark meat turkey. Um, 
I, you know, I, I had some, uh, I had some wonderful uh, uh, chili experiences in, in Detroit, eating uh, conies, and in Cincinnati, where it turns out that the Cincinnati chili is really a, a Greek dish, macaronia mikima, uh, which a Macedonian immigrants brought to Cincinnati, and uh, since everybody called. Everybody was eating chili there. They just called their uh, their home dish uh, chili, but uh, they ate it at home on spaghetti. And uh, so they brought this um, this macaroni and meat kima. Macaroni being the spaghetti part, um, and the kima being a, sort of a, a Middle Eastern uh, chili. And uh, so so their their chili, while Texans find it, you know, a real head scratcher that people are putting chili on the spaghetti. Uh, it turns out that that is a very old, time-honored tradition as well, and uh, and uh, I love the uh, I love the Cincinnati chili folk, and uh, and uh, you, do you have any of their uh, any of those uh, Gold Star or uh, any of those other uh, chili chains up in uh, in Wisconsin? I have not seen them, but I did. I actually wanted to key in on something you mentioned there. I grew up in southeastern Michigan. I ate. In hindsight, probably a disturbing number of Coney dogs as a youth with you know, a hot dog with the Coney sauce, chili, uh, mustard, and raw yep. onions on it. Uh, if somebody wanted to recreate a favorite childhood memory, say, what is the key to make it a good Detroit-style Coney sauce? Well, I've got a recipe for, for Detroit uh, Coney sauce in, in the chili cookbook. Um, and uh, I've I've had complaints about it because... People from Detroit write to me, and uh, I, I said in the recipe that in Detroit this is made from beef hearts, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've I've Yum. changed the recipe. <laughs> I've changed the recipe to plain old ground meat, and I have people write and say it's better with the beef hearts. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's my uh, I, I slipped up. I wasn't authentic, but I, you know, well, now. Uh, current Rob Ferret would probably prefer it your way. Back as a kid, uh, I guess I didn't mind the beef hearts. I, I, what I didn't well, know. There was, there was you know. Not, there's nothing wrong with them. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I love awful dishes. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's not, uh, it's, it's, there's not, you know, I mean, it, it's great stuff. It's just, I mean, part of the reason I changed it was because it's kind of tough to go down to the neighborhood supermarket and get enough beef hearts mm. to make a nice pot of chili. I mean, I guess you can find them, but um, they're, they're not, uh, they're not in the meat counter. Rob Walsh is with us, award-winning food writer and author of a dozen books, including the chili cookbook. It's food Friday. We're talking about chili of all makes and models, including tips on how to up our chili game, make maybe even a prize winning pot. that will have your neighbors asking for the recipe. You could join the fun at 800-642-1234. Any chili fans out there? How do you make your chili stand out at a maybe that potluck? Have you done a cook-off at some point? What's the strangest ingredient you've added to chili or encountered that really worked? Do you have questions about how to make chili? Uh, any ver- varieties from vegetarian to classic to, I don't know, venison? Join in at 800 642 that's 800-642-1234. Do you have a favorite regional chili that you had? Maybe you're from a place with that chili or you've traveled. 800-642-1234 is the number or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferret. 
We're picking up our Food Friday talk with award-winning food writer Rob Walsh. He's the author of The Chili Cookbook, among other things. And we are talking about chili, lots of great varieties and advice. Still time for you to join in at 800-642-1234. What is your favorite variation on chili? San Antonio? Tex-Mex, Cincinnati-style, Coney dogs, beans, no beans. What do you like to eat with your chili, or what do you like to put your chili on? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234, or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Let's bring on a caller now. Carol is with us in Oconomowoc. Carol, hi. Hi, good afternoon. So, first of all, um, I do make a really good chili, beans, no pasta. Um uh, chili has to have cumin, and I do use uh, canned fresh garden tomatoes, um, so that's important. But the best meat that I've used is elk. Uh, it's hard to come by, but uh, elk is a sweeter meat, and it just makes for an awesome chili. Interesting. How often are you able to make your elk chili, Carol? Uh, whenever someone, I mean, obviously hunters are mm-hmm. pretty around in Wisconsin, but whenever somebody gets elk, I always beg for a couple of pounds of, <laughs> of meat. Do they, I hope they get some of the chili you make, right, if they're supplying the elk? Of course, of course. Carol, thanks a lot for sharing that. Uh, first of all, Rob, uh, chili with elk, I just checked the index that didn't come up in the cookbook. Uh, is that something you've encountered? Um, I I have yet to enjoy elk chili, <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm open to... Uh, I'm open to the experience. So anybody's got some elk chili they want to lay on me, I'm here. Thanks for the call, Carol, at 800-642-1234. Rob, Carol also mentioned a key spice, cumin. I love cumin. I, I have multiple jars of cumin seed that I grind up for just about anything. Why is cumin such an important part of our chili? Uh, cumin is a is a very interesting and, and slightly controversial uh, spice. Diana Kennedy, uh, the the great uh, guru of Mexican food, said that uh, Tex-Mex uh, used way too much cumin, that, uh, that you should only use a pinch of it in authentic Mexican food. Um, and uh, when, as, I, as I looked into it, um, I realized that part of the reason Tex-Mex has uh, a lot more cumin in it than Mexican food is because the early settlers of San Antonio who were from the Canary Islands. Uh, Spain gave a, a land grant to uh, people from the Canary Islands who would come over and populate the city of San Antonio, and they brought with them their traditions, which are a little more in the Arab Berber kind of uh, kind of uh, strain. And uh, they their flavor signature was chilies, garlic and uh cumin and uh i mean it's for that reason tex-mex has a a kind of a semblance and a connection to arab food interesting well i'm I'm glad the cumin came along with it because i'm a big fan Uh, let's go back to our callers now linda is with us in milwaukee linda hi hi thank you for taking my call i have an interesting ingredient for chili that i just love it's um Dried tart cherries chopped, and it's so good. Well, you start out with chicken broth, and but the the cherries in there give it this sort of interesting flavor. So I just wanted to add that to it. Linda, thanks a lot for that. Yeah, go ahead, Rob. That sounds that that sounds great, Linda. And it's funny. I was going to mention that 
Uh, in the book, there are some um, some winning chili cook-off recipes, and one of them is called Bob Plager's $25,000 chili. He, he won a huge prize with this chili, and his secret ingredient is prunes. And he said prunes gave, gave uh, the color, the sweetness, and a, a sheen to the to the finished chili. Not far off of dried cherries. So uh, good good work there. That's super interesting, Linda. And I wouldn't have, I, I got to say, I would not have thought of putting, I don't think, any kind of fruit in chili, Rob. Have you experimented with other fruits to see if you can uh, match that, that prune-based chili? Uh, no, I can't say that I. I can't say that I have my probably a lapse in my imagination. I, you know, but I'm right there but, with you. Uh, I'm I'm happy with with lots of different kind of chilies personally. Thanks a lot for that call, Linda, at 800-642-1234. We're talking about chili on Food Friday with Rob Walsh, author of a whole bunch of books, including. The Chili Cookbook. Still time for you to join in with your chili favorites or questions at 800-642-1234. Tom is with us now in Glendale. Tom, hello. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to share something and then uh, offer what I'd like to do for my chili. And that's for about 10 years, our company has actually had a chili cook-off for for the employees. And it's a great hit. You get to try a lot of different people's idea of what the best chili is, and it's worked out. Get a little prizes at the end. Uh, it's one of the big things that we do for our, our business. But one of the uh, chilies I like to, to bring to that event is I use cubed up, um, a, a, a cheap cut of steak that's got some fat in it, and then pork as well, and no tomatoes, five different kinds of beans, and many people can't even tell that that there's no tomatoes in the chili at all, and uh, it's done well a couple of years. All right, well, done well, Tom. Don't leave us hanging. Did you win? Yeah. <laughs> well, first prize, actually. Oh, you didn't want to yeah, brag. First cool. prize. Ah, well, uh, congratulations, Tom. Thanks a lot for sharing that. Okay, a lot there, Rob. One thing, uh, he mentioned uh, cubing up uh, the, the steak and the beef in there. What? How do we make the decision between whether we cube it or pull it or, or use ground meat? So what are the considerations there? Well, in, in Texas, we we have a, a grind called chili grind that you find in the in the meat case. It's basically ground meat, but with a half inch die on the meat grinder. So if if by any chance you're grinding your own meat, uh, you'll find that at the shop, any shop where they sell meat grinders, along with those fine die that you can get to to make the usual sort of ground meat. You can find a, I think it's a half inch die, and uh, you put that on your meat grinder, and it, it grinds it in big chunks, which saves you the the uh, intensive labor of cutting uh, all that meat up uh, into little bit, bits yourself. But if you do that, uh, I think it was Wick Fowler, the, the famous chili maker, who said, "Cut the meat into pieces the size of the last joint of your little finger." So there's a tip. Right. Interesting. And then uh, five different beans in Tom's recipe. What are when we use beans and chili? What are some of the usual go to's uh, or, or do you like to experiment with a different mix of beans? Um, so I as I said, I had a Tex-Mex restaurant for many years. We made, you know, gallons upon gallons of chili every day. 
Um, we didn't we don't put we didn't put beans in it because mm-hmm. in a Tex-Mex restaurant, the chili is sort of the mother sauce. I mean, you put chili on tamales, you put chili on, like you said, on on hot dogs, you know, and you don't want beans in the chili if you're going to put it on a hot dog. It, it, I mean, you're from, Fair. you're from Michigan. I mean, is that is, am I am I speaking the truth here? I, you know, I did it once. I used canned chili with beans on a hot dog. It was weird. I regretted that decision. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, so the thing is, um, the chili sort of evolved into this one-pot meal for most people who make chili. They want to make a pot of chili and then put it in a bowl, and that's dinner, um, which is great. That's fine. But, you know, if you're if you're a Tex-Mex restaurant, you need the chili. You need to use the chili on the enchiladas. You need to use it on the tamales. You need to use it on all different things. Now, you know, you could get a bowl of chili and, and some beans and, and, and mix them together because they're both, you know, obviously there in a Tex-Mex restaurant. It's just that there's many other starches or, uh, you know, other dishes that, that you want to use the chili for. And that's why you don't put beans in it, not because they don't taste good, but because it's more practical. The other thing is uh, that most people should should be aware of is if you're going to put beans in the chili, put them in in the last half hour, especially, I mean, I'm talking about canned beans here. Um, if, if you're using canned beans in chili, if you put them in at the beginning, they're just going to dissolve. They're going to turn to mush. Um, if you want, if you want your beans to be intact, then you need to put them in towards the end. Rob, we'll leave it there. Thanks for sharing this great advice with us. Hey, it's been my pleasure. That's Rob Walsh, award-winning food writer and author of a dozen books, including the relevant one today, The Chili Cookbook. He joined us for a Food Friday conversation about chili variations from around the country and around the world and how you can take your own chili recipes to the next level. Still time for you to share your chili favorites over on the Ideas Network Facebook page or email ideas at WPR.org, maybe with a recipe. Coming up Monday on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, a group of election experts has a 24-point plan to safeguard the voting process in 2024. A Wisconsin co-author joins the show for a look at those recommendations Monday morning at 7.30 here on the Ideas Network. always exciting when a new song or album drops from your favorite artist. Sometimes it comes with a lot of advanced publicity. Sometimes it's a surprise. In at least one case, it brings important messages about consumer safety. The Federal Consumer Product Safety Commission just released a new album. It's an EP titled, We're Safety Now, Haven't We? Volume 1. According to the Safety Commission, the songs are aimed at 13 to 24-year-olds and target common safety hazards. Messages include wearing helmets while riding bikes firework safety and smoke alarms and a favorite of mine warnings about the hazards of walking and other activities while staring at your phone the artists are officially anonymous we'll see if we can name names at some point gotta say these songs are way cooler than the safety related songs i remember from my own youth this one fading up here is called phone away in its wpr debut this is central time
You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. The U.S. House Oversight Committee will hold its first hearing on the impeachment inquiry of President Biden next week. House Republicans are accusing the president of improperly benefiting from his son Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings while Joe Biden was vice president. So far, they have yet to produce evidence of wrongdoing or direct financial benefit for the president. But House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the impeachment inquiry will allow them to investigate more fully. Today, I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. This logical next step will give our committees the full power to gather all the facts and answers for the American public. That's exactly what we want to know, the answers. I believe the president would want to answer these questions and allegations as well. The House committee says the first hearing next week will focus on constitutional and legal questions surrounding the president, and they are subpoenaing bank records of Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and his brother, James Biden. The White House has called the impeachment inquiry baseless and a political stunt. Our next guest is here to help us preview the hearing and how the impeachment inquiry could unfold with the threat of a government shutdown just days away. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you support this impeachment inquiry into President Biden? Why or why not? What, if anything, do you hope comes out of it? What questions do you have about how this all works? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Susan Johnson is an associate professor of political science and associate dean in the College of Letters and Sciences at UW-Whitewater. Susan, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you so much for having me. We're hearing the I word impeachment a lot lately here in Wisconsin and now in the U.S. Congress again. Can you briefly remind us? When we're talking about a president or other federal official, how does this impeachment process work? So it is uh, the Constitution very uh, succinctly indicates that uh, for high crimes and misdemeanors, there is the opportunity to remove federal officials from office using this uh, impeachment process. And as we know, it has been used quite infrequently at the presidential level, although in the past um, few decades, it's been used more commonly. So those those people who are, you know, have been were born in the 80s and beyond or even the 70s and beyond would think about this as maybe something that's more common than, in fact, it was historically when there had only been one um, impeachment and not removal. And so it's um, it's an interesting time that now we had a presidential impeachment in 2019 and then 2021, and now we're in 2023, and we're talking about potentially another one. Can you talk about the basis of being offered by House Republicans for, you know, why opening an impeachment inquiry against President Biden and, and why now? Well, I think that's it's interesting because unlike prior impeachments where there has been something quite tangible that has led to the opening of an inquiry. What we're finding in this instance is that it's much more amorphous. House Republicans have been investigating uh, President Biden and his family now for a while in regard to um, what may have happened between President Biden when he was then Vice President Biden and influence that may have been exerted by his son, Hunter Biden, 
in some of his business dealings with Ukraine and China. And so it's, it's important to understand that there have been hearings ongoing in Congress and they've yet to really unearth anything, uh, quote unquote, smoking gun that would normally then initiate impeachment hearings. Right. Uh, we've had House Republican-led committees doing these investigations. We heard Speaker McCarthy there saying uh, this will give the committee the full power to gather facts. Are there things that House committees can do under the auspices of an impeachment inquiry that they couldn't do without that? They can make requests to the White House for information and things like that. They um, it, it just has more weight when we're thinking about impeachment. And so in that regard, there are are certain liberties that they can take that the White House will feel compelled to respond to that they might otherwise not have felt compelled to respond to if during just this investigation. But then I think it's also uh, probably more important to recognize that there's a political mm-hmm. implications from holding impeachment hearings versus just investigatory hearings because impeachment carries with it a certain weightiness that investigation doesn't. And the uh, the accusations here, especially from the president and his supporters, is that this is a, a political act uh, with the 2024 elections in mind. Uh, what do you make of, of that response from the president and his supporters? I think that it it is a something being done with uh, politics in mind. I think that also it is much more proximate to what's happening with uh, the potential government shutdown at the end of the month and some of the promises that Speaker McCarthy made to members of his caucus in order to get their support to finally be elected Speaker back in uh when he went up for speaker and we had so long before he was actually elected. And then I think on top of that, there's also this idea, and I I mentioned it before, that we've had two impeachment hearings in the past few years. And so it's just not, I guess it's not uncommon anymore. And it's also important to note that um, ideas about inquiries into impeachment were introduced on the first day of the new Congress by for example, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and others have been talking about impeachment now since the Republicans took control of the House. Talking to Susan Johnson, political scientist at UW-Whitewater, talking about the launching of an impeachment inquiry by House Republicans targeting President Biden. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 with your reactions, your questions. Chris joins us now in Menominee. Chris, hi. Hi. Uh, so my question is, uh, how can this be an actual impeachment, if you want to call it that, without going to the floor for a full vote in the House? Chris, thanks for the call. There's been debate over this, uh, Susan, both in this one and in the impeachment inquiry proceedings uh, going forward against former President Trump. The question of does the House need to vote to launch an inquiry in the first place? Uh How's that all shaken out? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question that that Chris raises. And historically, again, in past impeachments, there was a vote on the floor of the House to launch this inquiry. Then in 2019, 
when there was the first attempt, the first impeachment of President Trump and the attempt to remove him, there initially was no vote on the floor of the House. And many people surmise that to be because there were some Democrats who didn't want to take that vote. And Nancy Pelosi, a speaker at the time, was trying to protect them. So there was a lot of pressure. And then ultimately, shortly after calling for the investigation, she then did hold a vote on on the floor of the House. And all but two Democrats, I believe, supported that. In 2021, in President, former President Trump's second impeachment, there was no vote. But the interesting thing that happened between 2019 and 2021 is that the Trump Department of Justice issued a, a directive or a ruling that said that um, it would not be appropriate or correct or valid. It would not be a valid impeachment inquiry if there was not a vote on the floor of the House. So that has been something that Republicans have spoken about a lot in regard to particularly the 2021 impeachment hearings. And so it's it's interesting, ironic, or whatever you know word you want to use, that um, now Speaker McCarthy is moving forward without something that he pushed for quite strongly. We're talking to UW-Whitewater political science professor Susan Johnson about the impeachment inquiry into President Biden ahead of the first House committee hearing on that next week. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think about that decision uh, to launch this impeachment inquiry into President Biden? What do you think about the politics connected to it? Join in with your thoughts or questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation, maybe hear from you, coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with Susan Johnson, political science professor and associate dean at UW-Whitewater. She's with us to look ahead to next week's House committee hearing on the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think about the decision by House Republicans to launch the inquiry? What questions do you have about how it works, why it's happening now, how it might play into the potential for a government shutdown. Join in at 800-642-1234. Let's go back to your calls. Basil is with us on the Menominee Reservation. Basil, hello. Hello, and thank you for taking my call. In my language, it's match why when and Katana Namua. Okay. And what did you want to bring up, Basil? Well, I'm, what, what I'm doing is I've been, I've been watching this, you know, quite closely, and I've been watching, you know, as far as the 15 rounds that McCarthy had to go, 15 times they had to, you know, vote for him to become speaker in the first place. And there's a group of Republicans, and I don't like to use the bad words that, are, that people people use regarding, you know, uh, these these people that, that that are fighting against everything. To me— being a veteran, being a person, being a small business owner, uh, being a trucker. Um, you know, I may be paying a little bit more for fuel nowadays and everything like that, but I'm going to tell you something. These people right here, they have to – McCarthy, it seems to me, is stuck in, his, uh, in the middle of things. He has to do something for them. He has to throw them a bone and do this impeachment inquiry. Otherwise, they're going to they're going to be looking at him and they're going to be one guy, one person, one female, one one person can jump up and call for his for his speakership. 
Basil, thanks a lot for the call, Susan. You uh, touched on that briefly. Can you talk a little more about the politics within the Republican House caucus that, uh, as Basil points out, have Speaker McCarthy in a tight spot? Yeah, um, many people would, are you know, curious that it's been this long that he's faced, Speaker McCarthy has faced such a challenge in regard to people who are, they're openly threatening him. So, for example, uh, Congressperson Matt Gates from Florida has been openly taunting Speaker McCarthy with threats about calling to vacate the chair and, uh, you know, not being satisfied even with calling for the inquiry. So there's a lot of politics involved. And again, like as I alluded to earlier, we've got 2024, we have the potential shutdown of the government and um, so many other things that are going on right now. And, um, you know, one thing that's important to point out is that just because an inquiry has been launched doesn't mean that we will ever get to the point Mm -hmm. where there's a formal vote even for impeachment or articles of impeachment brought. Thanks a lot for that call, Basil, at 800-642-1234. Willem joins us now in Colfax. Willem, hello. Hi. I think, the, you know, the congressman that you've mentioned, part of the ironically called Freedom Coalition or whatever they are, the, they're all supporters of the former president, and they marched to his tune, and he said that he was going to be, you know, the vengeance president of the IMU retribution, all these things, and this is why they're doing this, because... You know, Hunter Biden might be a, a problem for his father and his family, but no one elected him. He's not a member of the government, unlike Jared Kushner, who was a special advisor to the president of the United States. Two days after the president left office, he got $2 billion from the Saudi royal fund. What's that about? Why don't we investigate that? I mean, these people, it's just about the big lie. And... The big lie has always historically gotten people into trouble. Nothing good comes from this. Well, um, thanks a lot for the call, Susan Willem, pointing toward uh, the connection uh, between supporters of impeachment here and former President Trump. And Willem says turning a blind eye to uh, President Trump's family's dealings uh, after coming out of uh, serving in the White House. Well, I think that um, a couple of things and that uh, Willem sort of alluded to is that we're talking about things that potentially, even if they happened, uh, took place while President Biden was vice president Biden 10 years ago. And again, there's no solid evidence that anything happened. But as far as the investigation goes, the root is a, a long time ago. That is quite different than impeachment hearings more recently in the uh, 20th and 21st century. Those were regarding events that happened while the person was in office. So that's a distinction. And then the other thing I would say is that absolutely, former President Trump has been very clear encouraging members of the Freedom Caucus and others to pursue these impeachment investigations. Well, um, thanks for that call at 800-642-1234. Looking at the House Republican decision to launch an impeachment inquiry, targeting uh, President Biden. Susan Johnson is with us from UW-Whitewater, and you could join in at 800-642-1234. If you have thoughts, reactions, or questions for our guests, that's 800-642-1234, or email ideas at WPR.org. Susan, I want to get into this uh, government shutdown risk. Now, we have again and again uh, in this last... (laughs) 
last few days, really, uh, before that deadline looms, uh, votes that don't approve parts of the federal spending package uh, while this uh, impeachment inquiry is being lost or launched, I should say. Uh, Why is the House having trouble passing uh, anything on the budget? Well, I mean, I think it goes back to, again, some of those same members in the House of Representatives, the Freedom Caucus, that some of our callers have referenced in in their questions. And it's a similar group of people who are really digging in their heels in regard to what they're willing to go along with. There was a, a framework agreed to by President Biden and Speaker McCarthy months ago that had to do with the debt ceiling and other issues that we were dealing with prior. And So the framework of the spending had already been set, and then the job became to pass the spending bills necessary to then keep the government funded. And what's happening now is that the members of Speaker McCarthy's caucus who are balking are saying that, that they didn't agree to that framework and they want a lot more cuts to be made than what had been agreed to. And what's interesting, and this is even some Republicans have been quite critical, is that even the defense authorization bill, which is usually a huge bipartisan win, can't get passed because of what's going on with a small number of House Republicans. I want to get into potential political fallout, Susan. Uh, We don't have a lot of precedent to work with uh, when it comes to impeachment inquiries, impeachment efforts. Uh, But what do you think about when you wonder, you know, who will this hurt Republicans for pursuing an impeachment inquiry? Will it hurt uh, President Biden in his election campaign? What are some of the things that uh, could determine the answers to those questions? I think that one of the things that will determine the impact of these hearings is how long will they go and what type of information will be put out there. And so I think that if it ultimately gets to the point where there are articles of impeachment brought and those are supported in the House by a majority, and then we have to go to a a trial in the Senate, that's a very different political environment, particularly if this is going on into the election season than if this investigation just, you know, wraps up because we still don't know to what extent this is Kevin McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy, again, just trying to placate members of his caucus by allowing these hearings to go forward. And so I think that's a, a big issue for me is in terms of what the fallout is going to be is, is what actually happens from here. And staying with the theme of political fallout, if we, in fact, uh, have a partial government shutdown and we start to see some key services uh, start to go undone. A lot of things still happen after during a shutdown, uh, but some things don't. How does the blame usually get assigned when we've we've been at this point in the past? Republicans have not done well historically when the government has shut down. And that's generally, um, you know, the party that is sort of leading the charge. And in this case, there is no doubt who is leading the charge. It isn't even the entirety of the Republican Party as much as it is a handful of members. But um, I think that if history holds, then we would see some blame laid out as in, for the Republicans. 
And Susan, I'd love to ask you this in our last minute or so, talking with your students about the latest current events. I know you like to do that. What kind of things are you emphasizing to them as we watch uh, yet another uh, in recent history, yet another impeachment inquiry? Well, I mean, again, for students, this is just par for the course. I mean, you think of, you know, college age students, this will be their third go round since they've been in high school. So it's just not as uh, momentous, honestly, I think, as it is for for you or I, but certainly, um, you know, paying uh, keen attention to it nonetheless. Susan, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Happy to do it. That's Susan Johnson, Associate Professor of Political Science and Associate Dean in the College of Letters and Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. She joined us today to help preview next week's House Committee hearing for the Republican-led impeachment inquiry into President Biden. You can follow reporting on that from our colleagues at NPR on our website, WPR.org. Coming up Monday on Central Time, high technology and big books collide. John Grisham... George R.R. Martin and other big-name, high-profile authors are launching lawsuits against the creators of so-called artificial intelligence programs, your chat GPTs and others, saying that they're scanning and then imitating their work, scanning and then scamming their work, in effect. Find out what's at stake for the creative world, for artificial intelligence technology, and for the books available for us to read. And you can share your thoughts on that. Are you worried about... uh, Your favorite authors having knockoff versions created by artificial intelligence. It's already happened with George R.R. Martin, it looks like. Share your thoughts right now. Ideas at WPR.org is our email. That's ideas at WPR.org. Also coming up on Monday, online retailers over the years made it pretty easy to return products, though that's starting to change. But when we return our stuff, what happens next? Find out why easy returns have created a new hidden economy around the world. Those conversations and more are coming up Monday here on Central Time.